Morning. Good to see you today. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and I want us to discover three things about God that the resurrection uh, teaches us and reveals about Him. And uh, I want us to do that through this particular text. I had somebody come up to me earlier in the uh, day during Sunday school hour, just before the Sunday school hour. They said, hey, we're not going to make it uh, this morning. We're not going to be in there uh, this morning. We've got nursery duty, okay? And I'm just kind of like, oh, man. And so I said, okay, let me go ahead and give it to you. Look, uh, you know, what we need to know of those three things is God is faithful, God is powerful, and God is willing. And I said, God is willing not because uh, you deserve, uh, you know, God to be willing, nor does God have any need to fulfill uh, but God is willing because of his own glory. He wants to do his own glory. And he goes, is that it? I said, yeah. He said, why can't you do that every Sunday? Uh, well, because I choose not to, okay? What would you do with the hour, huh? So let me just uh, preach the gospel this morning to you and uh, pointing out these three things uh, as I speak of. The scene, of course, is the, the, the day of Pentecost. Uh, this is the day that the Spirit of God came down. Uh, there in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus had told the disciples when they left him and as he ascended, uh, he said, look, you stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, until the promise is fulfilled uh, that the Father will send and that I will send. And so what did they do? They went and they were there uh, in Jerusalem and they stayed there for some time. Um, Understand, uh, Pentecost was a festival that already existed. It wasn't something that came about uh, because the Holy Spirit came. Pentecost was a, a, a one-day festival, a one-day feast, if you will, uh, that was 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost, uh, Pente 550. And so uh, it, that's, that's the scene. That's what's, this is 50 days, some, uh, some 47 days, if you will, after Christ rose. After the resurrection. And then on this day, the Spirit of God came and filled those believers. And they began to speak. And finally, Peter got up and he began to preach. And it's Peter's sermon that I want to call attention to today. And how he called attention to uh, the God who had accomplished all these things. And the God who has accomplished great things in his people. And so I want us to look at that today and notice that. And I, I, I've already given you the three points, okay? We're going to notice these three things, that God is faithful, God is powerful, and that God is willing. The thing is, okay, you think, man, this is going to be short. It's going to be sweet. The thing is, I'm going to preach those three points twice. You look at me like I'm kidding. Because the first time I want to explain how Peter is bringing that out. And the second time, I want to apply the truths that he reveals. And so instead of doing that in conjunction so that I can have six points instead of three, we're going to go that way. So the resurrection of Jesus proves the hope we have in him is not in vain. It proves that Hoping in Jesus for eternal life and forgiveness of sins is not a foolish thing to do. And it's not foolish 
Because Jesus is risen. He is alive. He definitely died on the cross. He was surely buried, as the historical record proves to us. And his tomb was empty, just as the historical record proves to us in the testimony of over 500 witnesses of Jesus being alive after he was dead. Run 500 witnesses into a courtroom, all to say the same thing over and over and over again. And see if a jury doesn't go. 500 people all saying the same thing. They're going to say, yep, what they're saying is true. I want you to know Jesus is risen, and it proves that our hope in him is not in vain. His resurrection not only proves that the sin of those who repent and believe in him has been atoned for, it proves that God is powerful to transform those who believe and repent and willing to display his glory in the likes of you and me. So I want us to go through uh, this text and uh, it's a large text, so you know I'm going to break it up a bit. But Peter is, is proclaiming here on the day of Pentecost. And he first uses the prophet Joel to explain, hey, these guys aren't drunk. This is the Holy Spirit, okay? And then the next thing he does is he uses David uh, to speak concerning the Christ. So uh, Peter is preaching from the word of God. He's preaching the word of God on this day of Pentecost. He's not making stuff up as he goes. He's looking at the text and he's saying, this is what the word of God says that is going on right now. And this is what the word of God says about Jesus, the son of God. So the first thing I want us to see is that God is faithful. He is faithful uh, there in verse 22, uh, he stands up, he's preaching, he goes, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know, the events of the day when the women went to the tomb, uh, we, as we think about that, we see that as a, uh, that they surely approached the tomb and came to that place. The women, when they were coming, they had spices in their hands. There was a hopelessness that was about them when they were going there. Yet when they got to the tomb, it was empty and open, and they had no body to tend to with the spices. And they realized very quickly that the Lord had risen. They ran back and told the apostles. They took off to the empty tomb. And hopelessness was transformed. Uh, great hope came. Because all had gone according to plan. Now notice the distinction. They went with spices. They went to prepare the body. They went to further preserve the body. As was the custom of uh, the Jews. And they weren't walking up there and they weren't thinking in their hearts, you know what? As we come up here to this tomb where they laid Jesus, everything went according to the plan. 
The apostles, surely they were back at the house, you know, thinking, you know what? Everything went just like it was supposed to go. No, they weren't thinking that at all. There was a sense of hopelessness that was over them. But everything had gone according to plan. Jesus had come into this world. He had been born as a babe. He had lived a perfect, sinless life. He had proved himself to be God. He went to the cross, was nailed to it, beaten, scourged, uh, run through, and died on that cross. Everything had gone according to plan. Peter in his sermon is pointing out that fact. When he says there, this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did y'all hear what he said? Uh, 50 days earlier, he didn't think things went according to plan. But here on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching a whole different word coming out of the word of God that everything went according to plan. There was this definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When did this plan come about? Well, the scriptures tell us that it came out about before the foundation of the world. Before anything was created, God had a plan to redeem lost mankind. Wait a minute, mankind didn't exist. They were going to. And I want you to know, they were going to be sinful. They were not going to measure up to the character and the nature and the stature of the God who created them. They would sin just like that. And so God had a plan of redemption. And this definite plan of redemption included that the Son of God would die at the hands of lawless men. That word killed is the word murdered. Indeed he was. A man with no fault, with no sin, was nailed to a cross. And he was nailed to the cross for the sins of the people. This plan uh, was, uh, was, came about before the foundation of the world But it came to us very early in Genesis chapter 3. Right after man sinned, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God came and he began to bring about the punishment. And what did he say? He said to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Folks, that's the gospel right up front is what that is. And the seed of the woman is Christ. And I want you to know at the cross, the plan lived out. The tomb, resurrection, it was seen to have worked. And the head of Satan was crushed and the Victory belonged to God. What we see is that uh, God is faithful to live out his plan. 
The plan included choosing a people. And we see in the Old Testament that he chose Abraham. And Abraham had Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had 12 uh, sons. And we see that the Israel is formed. And it's through this people. This is a people that he called to himself. And through them would come one. And that one would be Messiah. He would be the Christ. He would be Jesus. And he would come out of that people. And the people of Israel were called the people of God, a people for his own possession. And Peter takes that same phraseology in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he says uh, concerning Christians that we are a people of his own possession. We are chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We exist to make known the excellencies of the one who has saved us and bought us with a price. God's uh, plan included choosing a people and bringing them to himself. And he would do that by one means and one means only. His own son. The definite plan before the foundation of the world meant that the son would be the one who would go. And be redemption for the people. And he would redeem his people through his son. Forgiving their sins. Transforming their lives. And glorifying them ultimately for all eternity. God is faithful is what we see. We see that what God planned before the ages... He fulfilled through time. And wonderfully, he's still fulfilling it. He's still calling people to himself. He's still calling people to hear the gospel and believe. This very day, he is still demonstrating his faithfulness to the plan, the gospel that is proclaimed and that people Believe unto salvation. But not only is God faithful, God is powerful. Uh, the scripture tells us there in verse 24, look what it says. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He looks over to the psalmist, uh, to David, who, who, who said that uh, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. It's a messianic psalm. He's speaking of the Christ who will not be abandoned. We see power taking place. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Let's talk about that for a moment because the resurrection reveals the truth that God is powerful. But we need to understand power is being seen in two different ways. First of all, Power can be seen as authority or sovereignty. And the other is that power can be seen as force. First, let us think about this, that God is powerful. It says He raised, God raised Him up. He raised Him. God is powerful because He is sovereign. He is authoritative. Alright? He has authority over Everything and all things and all peoples. He has authority. 
You know, uh, we understand authority and we think of authority in ways uh, such as we think of uh, governing officials or we think of law enforcement and we see people who have authority. Authority that is not something that they earned, but authority that has been given to them by a people. But no one gave God his authority and no one gave God his sovereignty and no one gave God his power. God is authoritative and powerful according to his nature and according to who he is. We think sometimes of authority as something as we can govern over particular things. Okay? Yesterday, I was, uh, I was governing over something. I had me some authority yesterday. Uh, there was some ground in where our garden is, and it was covered in clover. And you know what? I had a solution for that. And I had authority to do what I was going to do. And I took and I tilled that clover right into the ground. And I busted that stuff up. And man, I was just going with that tiller. And I had authority to do that. And I didn't have authority to go over to my neighbor's house and till up his ground, okay? But I had authority to go to my ground and till it up. Why? It's my ground, all right? Number one. Number two, I had me some power in my hands because I had that old tiller. And it was going and it was bucking and it was doing all sorts of things, you know. It hit a root and it'd jump up like that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Oh, oh, Big Rick, he took hold of that thing and he put it back down on the ground, okay. I had me some authority and some power and some strength going on. And I tilled up that old dirt and it's ready for the seed now. Exercising dominion as God gave it to Adam, Right? What little bit of authority I have and what little bit of authority you have pales in comparison to the great authority that God has who made everything. I have authority over a few things. Matter of fact, some of the few things that I have authority over, I write my name on. I engrave it or I use a permanent marker which you can get off of acetone, by the way, so I don't know why they call it permanent. Permanent marker. I write my name on it. And I have the right to do with what is mine whatever I wish to do with it. We see authority here. We see God's power as God's uh, power and authority to do what He wills. And what He wills to do is to redeem people by means of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, by means of faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that is a powerful work of God. So we see the authority of God in play here, but we also see uh, the power of God and His force. We know God is powerful. How do we know that? He raised Jesus from the dead. That's some power, folks. That's power. Uh, we've seen power at work in some way in this earth and in our life. We've seen power at, at, at work. Perhaps you've seen uh, the, the power and the destructive power of a, a storm with heavy winds and rain and lightning and thunder and floods. We just had that, didn't we? We've seen how storms can take and 
take huge trees and just twist them into a mangled mess. Jeff Douglas and I last year went down to the Gulf Coast after a couple of hurricanes had come through, uh, both at, the co- at Texas and Louisiana. And man, we drive up on some of those scenes where our job is to take trees off of houses. Uh, some that have penetrated the roof of the house, some that are just laying over on top of the house, and we're supposed to get those off without doing any more damage. And I tell you, those trees will just be twisted like this, and trees within the trees twisted like this. And you think, how in the world are we going to get that out of there? But one of the things that you also think is this. What kind of force does it take to create that kind of destruction? force of a storm can bend and break trees, raise raging rivers that destroy everything in its path. Great power can be seen in machinery, heavy machinery that moves massive amounts of earth, takes down big trees, bulldozers, I want a bulldozer. Man, that'd be fun. Somebody gave me a Me Too over here. Can you imagine? I mean, just... Big old oak tree been standing there 150 years. Roots fly up in the air. Massive machines that have great force and power. Pushing just tons of earth. Making a pad for a house. Or making a levee to hold back some water. Just. I feel like Tim Two Man Taylor right now. Just thinking about it. That is such minute power when you think about the power of God because none of that power can do what this little sentence says half sentence God raised him up there's no power like that on earth Accept the power of God. God raised him up. How's that greater power? He took what was dead and made it alive. Well, Jesus did that with Lazarus, didn't he? Yeah, but Lazarus died again. He took what was dead, raised it up. And then Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, which is the hand of authority, by the way. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so we see that, the, that he did something. Something dead became alive. Have you ever seen that before? Anybody? I mean, have you seen something totally dead? Come to life. 
That's mesmerizing. I, I, I can't even grasp it, you know. You think about it long enough, your head will explode, I think. I want you to see that he raised him up. Boom! He came up. He was alive. You say, well, you know what? Just a few weeks ago, everything was dead. I mean, you look out and all the trees were bare and all the grass was brown and all this stuff. It was all just dead. I mean, it was dead for months, you know. The brutal winter we had. I'm kidding. We didn't have a brutal winter. But we had enough winter to kill everything off, didn't we? All the leaves were laying on the ground. They were brown. They had no life in them. Everything was dead. And then, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, everything started turning green again. So, yeah, I've seen things come alive. It's kind of like, yeah, but see, I need you to understand something. Those things had life in them. Jesus had no life in him once he was crucified. And God raised him from the dead. That's massive power. It says here that in raising Christ from the dead, God loosened the pangs of death, particularly the eternal pangs of death. Pangs, it's a synonym for pain and suffering and the uh, overwhelming discomfort of death. The overwhelming discomfort of dying, he loosened those. He set those free from him and from all those who will follow him in a resurrection like his. Jesus fully experienced death, but he's called us to something, and that is that we would uh, have life like he has. You see, the plan of redemption that God had before the foundation of the world that he made known to us in Genesis chapter 3 and all through the the text that he put on display in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that all of this is so that we could know the life that he knows. So that we could live as he lives. Being a Christian isn't about us having a life that is free from pain and free from loss and easygoing. Being a Christian and coming to know Jesus is us having a life like He has. Being alive like He is. And He does that by His power. And God's willing to do that. Isn't that great? God's willing. He it, it tells us here in, in 24 and over in 32 uh, of chapter 2 of Acts, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. We're all witnesses. He's talking about the apostles and the other 110 or so that were with them in the upper room and all this broke loose. He's saying we're all witnesses. This hundred plus people that Peter was with at the time who were proclaiming the gospel. So God is faithful. 
He's continuing to live out the plan and work the plan of redemption. But God's also powerful, and God is willing. Willing to what? He's willing to help you. He's willing to save you. He's willing to give you eternal life. He's willing to forgive you of all your sin. But it's not because of you. He's not willing because you're so special. We live in a generation that makes sure everybody feels special. God makes us special, but I want you to know, and he makes us a, a, a possession of his own, and that's pretty special. But he doesn't do it because we're special, and he doesn't do it because we deserve it. The Bible tells us that all of us are dreaded sinners. Uh, we are all steeped in the blackness introduced in the sin of Adam. All of us are full of sinfulness. And our hearts that so many people want to follow are corrupt. God didn't save us because, or God's not willing to save us because we deserve it. And God's not willing to save us because He has some need that needs to be fulfilled by Him doing something good for you. God has no need to be fulfilled. God's not wondering if you're going to make His day by praying and asking Jesus to save you. God's in need of nothing. He's willing because of His own glory. He's willing because redeeming the ungodly puts on display what a loving, gracious, merciful, glorious God that He is. And so, I want us to see that God is he's faithful. I mean, He's had a plan before the foundation of the world. He has made known that plan. He has made good on that plan. He has kept His promise that He redeems those who call on His name. He powerfully transforms and changes people. Part of His redemption plan uh, brings His children under His reign and authority. That power. In other words, we no longer live according to our own authority. We live according to the authority of the living God who redeems us. Now, in just a few minutes, I want to preach those three points again. I told you I was going to, right? But I want to bring them into application into our lives. First, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness extends to us today through the life, death, resurrection, and authority of Jesus Christ. The means by which man comes to God is through Jesus alone. There's no other way. There's no goodness that you can live out that will cause God 
to save you. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. God's faithful to keep his promise to all who believe and repent in Jesus. He's so faithful to do that. He saves us to the uttermost in that way. God's faithful to call the ungodly to himself. Did you, y'all heard that, right? He didn't call all the wealthy to himself. He didn't call all the poor to himself. He didn't call all the deserving to himself. It says in Scripture that he calls to himself the ungodly, that he saves the ungodly. Do y'all know why he calls the ungodly and saves the ungodly? Because that's all there is. He can't call the righteous. There are none who are righteous among man. None. Except him. Except Jesus. I'm glad he calls the ungodly because that would be me. I know some of you might not think that of yourselves, but you are. Don't forget, I know most of you in here. I also know my own heart, and my heart is not unlike yours. It is deceptive and deeply stained with sin. God is faithful to call the ungodly to Himself. Let me name some of you. Adulterers, murderers, thieves. He's calling out, he's extending to you this gospel to say to you, come. All who are weary and heavy laden, and if you're an adulterer or a murderer or a thief, you feel the weight of that sin and its guilt. He's saying, come. God's faithful to extend grace to the drunkard and the addict and the liars and the homosexuals. He's saying, come. He's saying it through the gospel that I'm proclaiming. That you're a wretched sinner in need of a Savior. And I want you to know, there is one and only Savior. And His name is Jesus. We see vileness and wickedness and evil and immorality just pervading our society all over. And it's this gospel that goes out. That changes and transforms the lives of the likes of those that I have mentioned and the likes of me. I was the angry and the violent. I was the murderer because I hated my brothers and sisters. And just about everybody. But he changes us. 
and he makes us new. He extends the gospel to all, to the sexually immoral, the homosexual, the quote-unquote transgender. He extends mercy and grace and love and calls you to this faithful gospel that he has kept true. And the truth is, is that as sinners, we can't save ourselves, nor can we change God's mind. And God's mind is made up. Those who sin and do not repent, those who sin and do not believe in Jesus Christ, will pay for that sin in eternity in a place called hell. God's faithful to forgive. There's no sin God will not forgive except the sin of unbelief. He's faithful to forgive, but he's also faithful to transform. People say, well, God made me this way. Well, you know what? When he saves you, he does not intend to keep you as you are. He doesn't intend for murderers to continue to murder, nor thieves to continue to steal, nor liars to continue to lie and speak falsehood, nor homosexuals to continue to practice homosexuality. Instead, God's power changes those he saves. In the same manner he raised and the same power with which he raised Jesus from the dead. Just as Jesus was raised to never die again, but instead to sit at the right hand of the Father with all authority, he saves us to lives that are aimed toward righteousness rather than sin, holiness rather than evil. In other words, when Jesus saves us, isn't it great? Uh, Sorry, I got a little excited. When Jesus saves us, He changes us. Man, did I need to be changed. Didn't you? Don't you? Don't you need to be different? Don't you need to be changed? Don't you need to be transformed? Don't you need to think better? He changes us. He transforms us. Paul's an example of this transformation. I mean, he was working against God in trying to destroy and take out Christians and the church that they formed. Paul was redeemed by the will of God, however, by the word of God. He'd gained much in terms of worldly pleasures and worldly things and worldly prestige. But what did he do? He turned it loose. He said, man, I I count all that as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I, I forsook everything, I turned loose of everything, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. Do you know what the power of his resurrection is? The power of a resurrection is the power 
that enables us as believers in Jesus Christ to put to death sin that exists in our life. Because we find as Christians that we still sin. And so what we do is we uh, live the rest of our life killing, putting to death sin. So many people say, I'm a Christian, but absolutely nothing about their life is transformed. Nothing about, uh, about their life today is different than the life of sin that they pursued before they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. The power of God does not merely redeem. The power of God changes those that are redeemed. In other words, we no longer love sin and embrace sin. Instead, what we do is we repel sin. And we fight against sin in our life. And we push back against the deeds of the flesh. And instead, we run to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those who are redeemed are not sitting in a stagnant pool, never changing, but are like a flowing river, always moving with the Spirit of God and being changed by Him. People who say they're a Christian yet continue to live in sinful ways will never convince anyone that you are what you say you are. Ever. Because the power of God changes us. The power is the power to put sin to death in our bodies. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we're identified with Christ in His death. And in his resurrection. We're buried with Christ in baptism. And raised to walk in newness of life. Never forget that folks. That the redemption that Jesus has paid. Paid for you to live a whole new different life. And he says. Let not therefore in verse 12. Sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passion. We're not to live that way anymore. We live changed. God's faithful to the gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, it says. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's willing to bring you into his presence through faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's what you're looking for. Did y'all notice in verse 28, David quoting Psalm 1611? You made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. God gladly invites you into his presence through faith in Jesus Christ. And he hears your pleas for help. He hears them. You're crying out to him. Perhaps this week you were crying out to him. Lord, I can't do this. Help me. Help me. 
I can't bear the weight of this anymore. Help me. And here you sit today hearing the greatest message, not my message, his message that he formed before the foundation of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ that changes and transforms and just blows our mind that he would save the likes of us. He hears your cry for help. Here's your help. Here's your redemption. Here's your salvation. It's in Jesus, the Savior and the Redeemer, who is risen. Because He is risen, what He has promised is absolute. Because what He said would happen on the cross, He would bury our our sin, is displayed as true. Well, how do we know it's true? That tomb is empty and that Jesus is risen. That's how we know it's true. So I urge you today, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You say, well, I'm, I need to talk with you about that. Okay, give me a call this week. Come see me. I'll be glad to visit with you about this. I'd love to share with you this gospel all over again. He hears your plea for help. Your help is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you, Lord, for the great love you've shown us in Jesus. I pray, God, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, as believers in Jesus Christ, uh, to put to death sin that is in us. And Lord, for all those, Lord, who are unrepentant, those who have not turned away from sin, uh, Father, perhaps, Lord, they have heard this and they believe all the facts about the gospel and all the facts about Jesus, Lord, uh, but they've never trusted in him and the evidence of a uh, of genuine faith is repentance from sin and so lord i pray lord that you would uh, uh father work in them in such ways lord that they would hope in you and they would turn away from sin and they would pursue the righteousness that comes only through jesus christ and they would pursue the holiness uh, by which no one will see the kingdom of god father we love you and we thank you lord for your great love for us in jesus name amen